0: Hello and welcome to The Last wicket, a cricket podcast that does not endorse following the laws of the game only based on how early it is in any given tour. I'm your host Benny and thank you for tuning in. Like quite a few of you out there, I'm very excited about the men's T20 World Cup in Australia. I'm hoping for some exciting games and tense finishes as long as they don't involve India. Personally, I will be rooting for Rohit Sharma's men but I just don't see how India are going to lift the cup in the absence of Jaspreet Bumrah. It remains to be seen if the Pacers in the squad can step up and make a difference, uh, because I genuinely believe that a team with the best fast bowling attack will go all the way. Speaking of which, our special guest this week is a person who I would term a legend among fast bowling coaches, Ian Pont. Apart from his time as a professional cricketer, Ian has worked at all levels of cricket as a fast bowling coach, assistant coach, head coach, and even as a national selector. Highlights of his career include his stints with the Bangladesh team, particularly during their memorable win in New Zealand, and shaping the skills of bowlers like Darren Goff, Shai Bakhtar, and Dale Steyn at various stages in their career. He has written three books, The Fast Bowler's Bible, Coaching Youth Cricket, and Ultimate Pace Secrets. He also has an online coaching course for aspiring speedsters, UPF Cricket. So do check out the links to this course and the books in the episode show notes. Before that, please keep listening for a special masterclass on fast bowling from Ian Pond himself.
1: All right, Ian, thank you so much for joining us. Um, it's it's an honor to have somebody who's worked so long in the cricket field and and we as cricket fans always are keen to learn. Um, you know, there's a, a lot you've done over the past couple of decades. You've worked with Essex, you've worked with the Bangladesh team. Um, you've written a book on fast bowling. Um, so there's I really don't know where to start, but maybe I'll start with the four tent peg approach. Now, this is an approach that I've seen You do videos on YouTube. Uh, I've seen kids in your academy work on it. Um, I'm just curious how that came about, because obviously I'm sure there was a bunch of experimentation, seeing how it feels on different players. Um, So what did the research around putting this together involve? Well, uh,
2: uh, it's a super question, and there's a lot to unpack in the answer. I'll, I'll try to keep it fairly short. Firstly, thanks, Mike, for having me on. Um, and it's always great to talk about fast bowling. It's really exciting, isn't it? Let's be honest, fast bowling, the thrill of the <laughs> ball flying past the batter. So look, where, where this whole kind of thing started with me, when I, I finished playing, I was the age of 27. It was back in 1988, I finished playing. Um, and during that time in, in the 1980s, I'd had a tryout with um, baseball. So I went across to the States and had tryouts with six major league baseball clubs as a pitcher. Um, And I also at that time was throwing a javelin. I was just kind of toying around with other sports where you could throw because I had a very strong throwing arm. And i I got the second longest recorded cricket ball throw in history. So just from a throwing perspective, I was curious about how to throw harder. And it was when I got to the States, ended up with the Philadelphia Phillies for spring training, um, that the coaches there were talking a lot about technique, the technique of throwing. I'd never had this before because when I was playing in the 1980s, there were no... There were no coaches. I mean, no one was teaching speed. We were always told that you're born a fast bowler. You it's not something you could learn. You're born with it. And, and I went to the states with that attitude and realized that I was completely wrong. That actually, it's process, and 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 humans are process based learners. And there was a way of learning how to throw harder. Mm-hmm. So if you could throw harder with a javelin, and you could throw harder with a baseball. That must mean surely you could bowl faster. So my interest was kind of peaked at that time. And then when I got back from the States and retired, I thought, let me do some cricket coaching based on this real layman's understanding of biomechanics. And that scared me a little because biomechanics just means body movement. Mechanics is movement, bio is of the body. So basically it meant bowling action. And back in the old days, the MCC coaching manual was only teaching one way to bowl, which was sideways on, which was landing your back foot parallel with the crease and looking over your shoulder and all this kind of good stuff. And no one was talking about what the bowlers were doing in the crease. They were talking about wrist position on pitching it up, hitting the top of off stump, swinging it away, all of the stuff which was outcome-based, but not how to create the outcome. So off the back of that, I started to experiment a little bit with javelin movements and baseball movements, bearing in mind that we have to keep our arms straight and not bend it at the end. But basically, similar body positions. And in 1993, I ran my first fast bowling camp, which was called Bowl Faster, or Your Money Back. And I had 21 people come along, and they paid some money. And I bought a speed gun at the time, and I measured their speed because I thought the only way to do this is if it's measured, it's managed. So I have to yeah. measure their speed and prove it. So we, we measured them on day one, and then it was over six weeks, two-hour sessions. So by the end of 10 hours of coaching, we then put the speed gun back on again. And the smallest increase was 6%, the smallest increase of speed. The biggest increase of speed was 16%. And what it made me realise was these were club cricketers of all different ages, all different levels. What I'd realised was by teaching them all the same thing, they all got faster and actually more accurate. And that kind of threw me because I was brought up to believe you had to slow down to bowl a line and length. And we still hear people say that today. Yeah. And actually it wasn't true because when I was in the States throwing a baseball, I had pitching practice in, in one um, practice session we had. And the pitching coach came up to me. He said, your speeds are really down today. You know, you were hitting around about 90 miles an hour and now you're throwing 80 consistently. What's happening? <clears throat> and I said, well, I'm just, I'm just throwing to kind of get the ball in the right area. And he said, well, what do you mean? I said, I- I'm just, th- just like throwing, I-, I-, I tried to explain slow down to bowl a line and length. <laughs> and he said, who told you that? And I was like, oh, my God, is that not true? He said, no. He said, you throw your most accurately when you're throwing at your hardest. And I was like, oh, my God. He said, because your biomechanics are correct. Because to to throw your hardest, you need to be accurate. And that's where your accuracy comes from. And it it kind of flipped my head open. So I know this is a long, long answer to how we got to the four tent pegs. But I wanted to identify what it was in the human body that we all shared because we're all different. Like you and I could, we could both bowl a cricket ball, Mm -hmm. um, but we'd look very different doing it. But was there some commonality? Was there something that everybody shared? And and what I realized, and there's other things as well, but what I realized there were probably 13 or 14 things. I called them key indicator points. And in my first book, The Fast Bowler's Bible, I've written two actually, the first one, The Fast Bowler's Bible, I put in that what, what those indicator points were. So, I had to initially understand, as hopefully all my students do now, that there's two differences. There's structure, which is you and I have got a head, two arms, and two legs. We're the same because we're humans. But there's also style, which is the way we we look when we do it. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: People confuse the two. So they'll say, you can't teach fast bowling because everyone's different. That's true. But we're also all the same, so you can teach it, which is also true. So it depends what you're talking about. So I teach structure. Not style. I can't teach style. I cannot clone you to bowl like Brett Lee. I couldn't clone you to bowl like Jasper Bumrah. I couldn't clone you to bowl like Lassie Malinga. Even if I wanted to, I couldn't do that. But what I could do is I could show you the positions to be in to be the best version of you. And actually, they are back foot contact, front foot contact, ball release, follow through. Those four things hold the action together. We all have to move through those positions to bowl. And I realized if we focus on those positions, they were the anchor points that hold the action together, which is why I called them the four tent pegs. Because if you put a tent up, you have a peg in each corner to hold it in place. Because if you've only got three or two, the whole tent blows around in the wind and it goes away. And however big that tent is, you still have to pin it in four places to hold the corners.
1: Right.
2: And that's in my simple mind how I looked at it. But, In terms of the research, which was part of your question, I literally looked at thousands of bowling actions, and I wanted to stress test it and say, are these people in these positions? And yes, they were. And you can take any bowler, pretty much, and they're in all those four positions. How they do it, the way it looks for each of them is very different, which is their style. But I teach structure, which is process. Therefore, I can teach people to bowl faster, more accurately at the same time without having to slow down. And that basically is what the four tent pigs does. It gives you the fast bowling skeleton or the structure for speed.
1: That's, that's a fascinating story. And it's, it's, uh, it's crazy how, you know, one sport can learn from another. Um, so that's, that's really interesting to hear, especially as, you know, I was recently looking at some baseball exercises for core explosion, which can help with batting and power hitting. And, and that's kind of, you know, reminds me of that story, but, um, You know, you mentioned you've worked with thousands of bowlers. Uh, I guess let's say you look at a new bowler and uh, or a young bowler uh, for the first time and um, you look at what he or she is doing uh, and you have a certain, you know, uh, tweaks that you recommend to them how long does it generally take for that person to make that muscle memory? Because I think that's where it becomes, it just needs to become natural, right? Uh, for you to execute in a match in a, any club game or whatever level they're playing.
2: Yeah. Again, brilliant question. Um, there's two parts to this. Um, whenever I look at a bowler, I'm looking for, for certain things. So even without a camera, although I do work with cameras, but even, and I really, I work with the camera to actually show the student mm-hmm. because they can often look at their own video footage and they don't even see what I'm, I say, well, you've done that, that. And they, don't, they say, well, I, I can't even see that. So I'm looking instantly with my eyes, but I film it. So what we do is we look for, for certain things. We need to make sure they're aligned properly, that they've got a good range of motion. They've got a decent sequencing that their top and bottom half work at different times to create that snap in the body that we talk about. We want to get that snap in the body. And also that they're in the right positions to launch from. So the platform is good. The base is strong. Now, I've worked with players. And the first question I say to them is rather than say, do you want to change your bowling action? Because no one wants to do that. If I say to them, would you like to bowl faster, take more wickets and be pretty injury free? They say yes, which is the (laughs) same thing, just a different question. So I, what I've learned is part of the language as a coach has to has to alter. So I never change a bowling action. I suggest and recommend. I'm a little bit like a plumber, you call him up and he he says, you know he turns up and says look you've got a leaky Uh, you know this is happening, that's happening, that's happening. but then he drives off and never fixes it. You think well that was no good. I wanted him to fix it. So as a coach, I, a t- I identify a fault and then help with a solution. Now having said that, Mike, not everybody, buys into that not everybody wants to do that so i always say this is like um all you can eat buffet if you turn up hungry you can eat as much as you like because i'm going to replace that food as many times as you wish if you've turned up and you're already stuffed and you just want to eat a little bit you eat a little bit but i'm going to give you the buffet i'm going to say to you that this is what you could do and here's here's the bit on top of biomechanics that biomechanics doesn't give you The skill drills to go with the changes, to go with the improvements, to go with the the things that make you better. Science doesn't give you that. Science identifies maybe what you need to do better, but it never shows you how to do it. And and I think that's a bit of an issue. Go back to your point about how long does it take. Interestingly, the better you are, the shorter the time it takes. So I've worked with an example, Darren Goff, the great English fast bowler who, who came to us at Essex he had an issue with his front arm or I thought he had an issue with his front arm and I wanted to get him to change his front arm position. He did that in one delivery. He tried it. He said, I like that. He stayed with it for the next four years before he retired. He made wow. a front arm change, which is a fairly major movement. Hmm. Um, I could teach that to someone who's 10 years old and it might take them six months, but, but that, that's just a guide. You know, everyone is different how they, they get it. So muscle memory is interesting because in it, I know, I know, for example, some coaches don't even believe muscle memory exists. Some coaches don't even believe that technique exists because they're if you sometimes work with a bowler, you will work it out for yourself, or just you know, there's no real guidance for some. But I try to create a roadmap and say the gold mine's here, you're here, we can go the fast route or we can go the long route. But if whichever you decide, we'll get there if you follow these steps. Now I could say, Mike, I could look at your bowling action and suggest some some really good recommendations. You go away and never do them. And you could come back in six months saying they've made no difference. And I'd say, did you do your drills? And you say, no. But there'll be someone else who goes away and religiously does that. And then the next time you see them, they are completely different. Because we want to get to a point where your bowling action is an automated response. It's not something I have to think about at the end of my run-up. Because my only thought is, how am I going to get the batter out? It's not what is my front arm doing or what's my leg doing or is my arm pulling back to the sight screen. That's what you do in training. You don't do that in a match. Yep. You might have a bowling hook in a match. You might say hold your action or you might say something in your head, but yep. you don't think about technique in a match. So once it's embedded, you're good to go. And you mentioned the word natural. And there's so much to unpack in your question. It's incredible. Isn't <laughs> I've got so much to talk about. Um, natural is just what you do every day. Yes. So if you get up and clean your teeth in the morning, that's natural to clean your teeth. If you've never done that, it's, just, it's not. If you only drink tea, that's normal. If you drink coffee, that's normal. If you've never done either, that's not normal. So naturally, is just what you do all the time. And you can change it. They say, oh, he has a natural bowling action. I never understand what that means. When I hear a commentator say <laughs> that, it's a natural athlete, I know what they mean is that they have assets that make them a natural, natural mover. But no one naturally, is just what you do. We're all natural, yeah. So, can you change what is natural? Of course you can, because it's just a process-based learning thing. So, again, long ask your question, but but with regard to the time it takes, that's down to the individual player, definitely.
1: Gotcha. No, that that makes sense. Um, the degrees they have to adapt, um, their willingness, of course, and and you know their ability to focus on those changes. Obviously, all of that will come together. Um I know you mentioned 6 to 16% improvement you saw in that you know first batch of players yeah, yeah. what are the percentages you see now and does it vary by age groups
2: Well the, the good news is I've got even better as a coach since then because then those those that <laughs> that was where I started I mean that was 1993 so we are almost 30 years so I've been coaching I've been coaching what I what I call technical skill drills for the best part of 30 years and what I'm seeing now is sports science. And this is going to sound strange, but sports science is actually catching up because sports science didn't really exist in this area at all. And people weren't looking at how to bowl for They were, but there was no kind of evidence. There was no kind of... And, and science doesn't prove anything. Science just disproves because it always moves on. You learn something new. So you can't say this is a definite in science. You can just have a okay. guess. Um, but what's interesting is that the, the increases in speed have also come from people being slightly fitter, being slightly stronger. Now, yeah. strength and conditioning is a really important part of fast bowling, but it's not the most important thing. The, what makes you bowl faster is the technical aspect of it. it. For example, if if you're trying to row a boat to win 100 metres, the thing that gets you over the uh, – uh, sorry, not 100 metres. If you're trying to row a boat to win, a, to win a, a, a rowing race, what gets you to the line first is, is the technical way you row the boat. I mean, you can pull the oars back as fast as you like and go, no like example, you can ride a bike in first gear, push bike, pedal bike, in first gear, your legs go really crazy, but you're not going very quickly. You right. put it into 21st gear, your legs are moving slowly, but you're now doing 30, 40, 50 kilometers an hour. You know, your speeds are much quicker because there's a gearing system in the bike. And if you understand that you can increase the speed of a bowler. So what I've understood in the last three decades is within, within everybody's action, there's a way of accessing more speed. We call it the kinetic chain, which is just the linking process by which people transfer speed. Some people need to use their legs more. Some people need to use their hips more. Some people need to delay the bowling action. Some people need to drive their chair. There's so many aspects of it. And no one is perfect, but everybody could increase this. But there isn't anybody that's maxed out at the top in terms of speed. Everybody could increase something. But the point is, how do you do it without spoiling what you're good at already? And that's the secret. So answer to your question, increases in speed. I mean, I've worked with students who have jumped 50%, 5-0% in speed. Um, Mm And we've got people in our National Fast Bowling Academy, albeit they're teenagers, and they will naturally get quicker anyway, year to year. But we've seen incremental increases from, let's say, 65 miles per hour, close to 78, 79. People are increasing 15 miles per hour. In the course of a winter, which is huge, um, and not because they've suddenly grown two meters in height, or they've suddenly, you know, they're not bench pressing three hundred kilos. Because you can never outmuscle a poor bowling action. I mean, however strong you are, you can't yeah. out-muscle a poor action. So speed increases. We can see significant jumps, but it does go back, like, right, to whether the people are doing their drills or not. If you don't yeah. do your drills, you're not going to improve. That's the bottom line
1: yeah and even if you do show you know um improvement it might be for a short period because then if you're not you know as you said, if your basics are not right, yeah. you'll end up injured or you'll not be able to sustain that that speed yeah. um, uh, I guess the one other thing I'm curious about is what, within what you said, you said at the end of the day um you know you always had a very strong shoulder yes. uh, so that also comes from just natural ability uh, or was there something specific you did, which is why you had that. But, but either way, my, my, I guess my point is if you have two 15 year olds who are, you know, who've just joined your camp and they are working with you and one has either that shoulder, which is very strong, it's probably going to be still a lot easier to work with him compared to the other individual. Um, but, or do you think it can be technically adjusted?
2: So uh, from a shoulder, I mean, shoulder perspective isn't isn't a key indicator of speed. I mean, it's not. I mean, shoulder rotation, mm-hmm. how fast you can move your shoulders is, um, nice. but we're talking about power generation. So, um, uh, you know, weight training encourages you to lift weights, but actually, mm-hmm. we don't want. To, we're not lifting the cricket ball. Only weighs one hundred and fifty four grams. We need to move it fast. So we're talking about creating power in a linear way. Um, shoulder is is kind of at the top end of the action, but the the speed actually comes from the hips so as the hips rotate that hip row like mm-hmm. you get as a golfer when a golfer swings they rotate their hips first they leave their hands back and that creates torque in the spine which is designed to rotate we don't want it to counter rotate we want it to rotate yeah. the same movement so hips go first top like a boxer throwing a punch you know the hips go first the top comes second if you just use your shoulder what you do is you end up stressing the shoulder so actually if people have strong shoulders can actually use too much of the shoulder i know it's an asset for them but they can actually overuse a shoulder sometimes. So the other parts of the body all come in together, specifically from my point of view, because you asked the question about my shoulder. As a kid, I used to throw stones. My parents, um, sorry, my grandparents lived down on the coast in Sussex, right down by Eastbourne. And I used to go as a six, seven-year-old and throw skim stones into the water. What I was doing was I was conditioning my throwing arm without realizing it. And as I got to yeah. mid-teens, I could throw everybody else. Um, so I, ju- I just, and I was just throwing my whole life. And I think I was just one of those lucky people that had that, that kind of throw. Um, and, and I think this just goes back to what's natural. I was used to throwing a lot. So mm-hmm. I tried to pick a sport where you could just earn money from throwing basically. Um, but the sh- my shoulder didn't really help with my bowling personally, because what I didn't realize was that other things were more important in the, in the body than the shoulder.
1: Yeah, no, that's that's a great point. Um, yeah, I mean, again, I've only played at the club level, and there we often see the difference in terms of how strong somebody's shoulder is, yeah. and uh, if two people have very similar actions, then the one with a stronger shoulder is often you know quicker, more bouncier sometimes. So things like that. But you're right; as a more sustainable approach, it's it's probably not just about the shoulder and and you know, well, it could actually end up being worse.
2: Also, to pick up on that, Mike, if you think of someone like Malcolm Marshall, he was five for eight. He wasn't big in the shoulders at all. He bowled, you know, ninety miles an hour. I played against him a few times. Scary guy. Um, he had he had fast shoulders. He wasn't big. Mm-hmm. Um, you can have other bowlers uh, going back. to The South African bowler Garth LaRue, who actually played at Sussex with Imran Khan, the, both of those bowls are quite big in the chest, big shoulder bowlers. You have Martin Delanger, who's who's playing county cricket in the UK. You have uh, Anrich Northier from South Africa. He's yeah. it, quite big shoulders. They have strong shoulders. Um, they would access or they might access their speed from using that. But there'll be yeah. other people who are very slight, like just a bit bummerer. you know, he's, he's not necessarily strong in the shoulders. Different people have different... show, show Akhtar. I mean, I worked with Show a couple of times. B- big in the shoulders. He was like built like a yeah. javelin thrower in that sense. But d- different bowlers have... It's more flexibility, rhythm, timing and coordination than strength.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So I, 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 but I get what you're saying. If someone's got a big set of shoulders and they bowl fast, you're yeah. always using it. And I get that. But equally, there'll be a small skinny bowler that just whizzes it through from nowhere. And you yeah. like, and that if you look at Jofra Archer when he's fit of course yeah Jofra is like a Rolls-Royce car I mean it's just super- <laughs> where does he I mean I know where his speed comes from but you know you look at it and think well where's that coming from so yeah. it's all about timing it really is coordination
1: that makes sense um curious about you know the outliers you've you've mentioned Malinga Jasper Bumra yeah. um in those cases obviously there's there's still that basis uh, that technical basis that they need to you know check off even if you know their shoulder isn't coming from uh, or their arm isn't coming uh, from a certain angle and all of that um but at the end of the day um is it for such players or such uh, talents that you find is it working a lot with the strength and conditioning coach to say okay we understand this is what um you know they prefer so at that point let's maybe because with the, this action I'm, I'm making it up but let, yeah. let's say with this action um it's their lower back which is getting a lot more stress than an average bowler so is it then working with that strength and conditioning coach to say let's focus on their lower back and make sure it can sustain through seasons well, there's a couple of things there that,
2: firstly that uh, if, if i take someone else jimmy anderson as an example, Jimmy Anderson who at 40 is, I mean, he's, he's he's been an incredible bowler. He'll probably go down as one, of the, if not the greatest, you know, fast bowler mm-hmm. of all time, just just because his stats are crazy. Jimmy's very, very fit, but he has a mixed action. I mean, he, he, his bottom half is sideways on, his top half is open. So technically, he has a mixed action. So he should, by rights get a stress fracture. Uh, or, or be or be prone, I should say. Sorry, he should be prone to that. And I believe he had one when he was younger. But, but with someone like Jimmy, because he's so fit and strong, S&C has really helped him to stay on the park. And he's really looked after his, his fantastic specimen. Um, just because someone has an action that doesn't quite tick every box, it doesn't mean they'll be injured. But from an example of injury, you can also be injured by over bowling. And in fact, we now hear spinners. Some spinners get stress fractures. So yeah. the interesting thing about injury is it isn't always the technical issue that causes it. Often it is. I mean, I would say in a majority, and I don't have stats, I'll be, be making it also up to say 90%, but a mm-hmm. large, large percentage of, of stress fractures are caused by a, uh, action. Um, in, in the lower levels, it's probably not that people are bowling so many overs uh, either. But at the higher levels, it might be they're bowling huge numbers of overs or they're bowling on hard surfaces, which is why we've got in this rotation of bowlers. Um, someone like Malinga and Jasper Brum are very different looking actions. They all go through the 4 tempeg positions. They have them. And again, going back to style, they have different style, but they have very similar structure. And I always, what's, it always brings me back to batting. People talk about Steve Smith saying so he, he has a really unusual technique. He doesn't actually. He has a very, very good technique. How he gets yeah. into his positions is his style. His style is very different, but, yeah. but technically he's a great... Like Sachin Tendulkar or Verak goli or Barbara Zam or whoever you want to pick, Joe Root, you know, Kane Williamson, they, they all get into the very similar positions. There's only a certain number of ways to, to play a cover drive. You know, there's yeah. not a thousand ways to, to, to hit a cover drive, but ha- there's a thousand ways to get into that position. And... Yeah. And I hear commentators talk, someone's they mistakenly say the technique is wrong. No, it's not. Their style is different. The technique is very good. And usually the people at the top of the tree, the fastest bowlers, the ones that score the most runs, very, very similar techniques. It's just how they do it looks different. And this is, I don't think as, and I'm speaking from a coaching perspective. Now I'm not speaking on behalf of the coaching community, but I'm just about to. I think at, at, um, at coach education level, we don't teach this stuff properly. We don't understand there's a difference between the technical aspect of it and and the, and how somebody looks their style of it. We get confused as coaches, which is why you don't often see fast bowling coaching specialists. I mean, the thing about the IPL and the PSL, there is long enough in both of those the limited overs competitions, T20s, to actually have a technical yeah. skills coach in there to work on the technical aspect because you've got enough. You've got eight weeks. Right. But you, if you gave me a bowler for two months, if I couldn't make a difference, I shouldn't be doing my job. You could <laughs> be somebody for six weeks and I don't make a difference, I shouldn't be in that job. So technical this is the area cricket hasn't gone into yet. It hasn't appointed technical skills coaches. You get it in football, soccer, you get it in other sports, rugby, handling coaches and stuff. Cricket, you don't. They're just it's just a person in a tracksuit saying, Pitch it up and with a mitt on trying to catch it. And that's about the extent of it. So I, I think in a way, we've kind of lost sight what coaching actually is. It is fault detection and correction, but you need to know how to make the, both of those in the first place. But it's a, it's a very interesting subject because I think the game is moving on. It's moving on very quickly on the pitch, mm-hmm. but it's not moving yeah. very quickly off the pitch.
1: And, and to that point, do you also see the same with junior coaches in the sense that, you know, have you seen them curtail whatever the style of a youngster might be, uh, because I I feel like we, you know, we'll see a bowler like Bumrah and we'll see youngsters try to copy that. But otherwise, like, you know, there's not a lot of variety in what we see in youngsters. Um, not to say that they're not innovative or all of that, but they just don't see enough on TV. They don't get encouraged by, some, you know, younger coaches. So I, I sometimes see that as an obstacle. Do you think that's a fair... Fair point It can
2: be. I mean, there was a there was a, a spell a few years ago when everyone was trying to bowl like Brett Lee. You know, they're all yeah. trying to load up like Brett Lee. And in fact, I went out to Chennai. I went out to the MRF Pace Foundation, you know, the great Dennis Lee was coaching. And pretty much his coaching was load up and pull him, at, you know, do this with your hands. I mean, it's very very similar to Brett Lee. Now, actually, in in Dennis Lilly's defence, Brett Lee is the closest to the computer model you could ever get. I mean. people aren't trying to copy Brett Lee. He's actually about 90-something percent of the perfect model. So I get why they would try and get people to copy, but they were mistakenly getting people to copy his style. But actually, inadvertently, they were helping because, you know, even Mitchell Johnson got this kind of similar load up. And and the reason people did that was because there was one of the greatest bowlers in the world doing it, and he looked effortless and easy. Um, And there was a reason for that. There was a reason for that. But uh, with junior coaches, that's an interesting area because I've always believed, as they do in other sports like gymnastics, is they put the best coaches with the kids. So what happens is very early on, the kids learn the good stuff with the top coaches, and they can't go on and become amazing gymnasts in their mid-teens. you know, Because if you get to 20 as a gymnast, you're probably past it. So there's a lot of specialisation earlier on in other sports than there is in cricket. Cricket's more... Have a bit of fun, which, of course, has to happen. Go and play the game, experience it, work it out. I get that. But at some point, you're going to have to get someone on the right track so that they have all the tools to be able to maximise their assets. And I think we get quite lazy in coaching, junior level. It's sometimes easier just to be a facilitator and just put nets on a range of game and keep score and go, right, last three, five to win, well played. And that's nice. Yeah, where is the where is the technical input coming from? You know, where is that happening? I don't see that. And then if you follow that through, does it then happen at senior level? Probably not. Well, then where do you get that input? Because if you get to first class cricket, and I've been there as a coach in ten years in county cricket, very very little technical input. There's not a lot at all. And and then if you go to England level, international level. You know, you should know that anyway, you're not gonna start getting coached at international level because if you are, you shouldn't be in the team. So what are the what what is the coach's function if they're not teaching technique at any of these levels? You know, only on that very basic technique. I'm talking about going into depth, into detail, yeah, and maximizing it. So I think junior cricket has a really big role to play. And personally, and I'll go back to coach education on this, I'd like to see the coach educators. Teaching the coaches how to coach this stuff properly so that we focus on the technique, which is the bullseye. Once the kid, like if you learn to ride a bike, you don't keep learning it. Once you've got it, you've got it. Teach them the right way and then let them go with it. But at the moment there's a, there's a kind of hands off approach to coaching and we have a lot of people playing test cricket with very bad batting techniques. And you think, Oh my God, where's he learned to bat like that? You've, You've only got to see some of the, the England, the way people stand in the crease, you know, I won't mention the names, but it's a very odd setups. So I know that's their style a little bit. They get into some very weird positions to hit a cricket ball. And you wouldn't teach that to a kid. So if kids are seeing that and copying it, we've got a problem. But if they're not even seeing it and they're not being taught it, where do they learn it? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. It's it's just yeah. a it's a good question, but I don't I don't know. But <laughs> I think junior coaching is important, very much so.
1: Yeah. Um, I guess the one other thing that I'm curious about is in in all your experience, I'm, I'm sure you've, you've faced this where let's say you're working with, um, a first class cricketer, um, you have a few suggestions for him or her, or, you know, you work with Bangladesh and let's say you have a suggestion for a fast bowler there. Um, and as he or she tries to make those tweaks, um, You know, it obviously takes time. We we talked about muscle memory and some people learning quickly and some others not. So let's say if it's taking time and they have an important series, important game coming up, uh, do you see that being a part of the pushback as well, saying, oh, let me think about this in the off-season? Or um, as you as a coach, do you generally try to work on people only in the off-season? How how do you approach that?
2: Yeah, another good question. Well, two things. Firstly, the, the, the player has to be coachable. So yeah. if you go to a player and say, uh, blah, blah, and they say, I'm not interested, then then that's fine. Um, you need to find people who are open to that. And there are two things here. There, there's training and there's playing. You never confuse the two. So you can train anything you want up until match day and in match day, just play cricket. What happens is eventually the changes start to embed themselves. So... You can you you could the day before a one and we did this in when I went over to Bangladesh we we played New Zealand. Um, my I arrived I was in the country five days and then we the New Zealand series started. It was ended up being called the Bangla wash because we beat him four was The first time we'd ever whitewashed anybody. Um, and Jamie Siddons was head coach and I arrived and said, "What's my role in in?" And he said, "You've got six months of the World Cup, so I just want you to get these guys to bowl straight." I said, "Really?" He said, "Yes, yeah, so many wides." And they're going for about six, seven, eight and over. It's crazy. And they'd lost 27 out of 29 one-day internationals when I arrived. It was like, okay. And we spent the first five days hitting the top of off stump. I mean, just drilled it into them. Hit the top of it, hit the top of it, hit the top of it, hit the top of it. So when the series came, they actually bowled really well. We ended up beating New Zealand. A couple of close scrapes. We beat them 4 nil It was called the Wash. And we were off and running. For four, and my first gig as a, with a test country was four out of four. And this is Bangladesh, who'd lost 27 out of 29. That year I was with them, they had 12 ODIs and won eight of them. And they were actually second behind India in terms of results in the world in that, in that six-month period. It was crazy. And all we got them to do was to focus on hitting the top of off stump. Now, as a technical skills coach, I didn't just say to them, hit the top of off stump, because every previous coach had said that. We'd worked yeah. on how to do it technically, what mm. things we had to do to you know, put your chin on off stump and make sure you line this bit up before you bowl. So we were creating almost sitters for them and it worked. And I don't know what they were thinking because some of the guys obviously speaking Bangla, they didn't speak um, Bengali, you know, they didn't speak English particularly well. Uh, the, some of the bowlers in particular weren't great with English. Um, yeah. They kind of helped each other, but, they got the message, and there's nothing like success, is there? I mean, if you, have, if you if you beat New Zealand in the first ODI, the crowd are crazy for a start. They're shouting and screaming. You beat New Zealand in the second ODI, and suddenly you think I'm going to win this series. This is crazy. The players then bought into the whole thing, and there was a different feeling about the squad. And you know they messed up a little bit in the in the in the. They could have got to beat England in Chittagong, which is great for me as being English. Um, and they should have qualified for the quarters and they didn't. But that was the beginning in 2011 of the fast bowling revolution because Bangladesh were playing like five or six spinners every game, you know, four or five right. spinners. They were not, they didn't have the quick bowlers. They have some more there now. Um, but it started there. So there was an attitude towards it. But in terms of when you do that work, which was your question, I think you have to do it where and when you can. Because um, if you're a batter, man, let's say you're playing in a test match and you play five innings and you keep getting LBW hitting across the line. I think you're going to want to change that. I do not think you're going to want to go into the winter saying, I'll leave that until the off season. There's no coach that I know as a batting coach would say, well, just leave that because you're going to be LBW sooner or later. Anyway, I would be in the nets throwing balls at you, putting the bowling machine on, getting you to hit straight, getting you to hit straight, getting you to hit straight until your arm fell off because I want you in a match to play like that. So with batting, we would drill it in. Bowling, why wouldn't we do the same? Why is it different for fast bowlers? And this is part of the problem we have. The attitude for fast bowling is so backwards. Within our own sport, the most backward part of coaching is fast bowling. It's completely nonsense. Um, It's like we're a different breed of human because we can't learn this stuff. As long as you don't go into a game thinking that stuff, you can practice it at any time you want. We could separate drills. We could do walkthroughs, jog throughs, run throughs. We can use bungee ropes, whatever else they want to use. I don't know, use hurdles. I don't use that stuff, but you know, they people do use it. Um, you can do all of that and then play the game. You don't have to have that and think, oh, I'm thinking of it in a match. So I would, I would never say to someone, do not train your technical skills ahead of a big series. I, I absolutely want to do that. Because I don't want to be sitting down with a player 3-0 down in a test series saying you bowled short because you're hanging on to the ball too long, which is why it's short. Or you bowl bowl five full tosses at the end because you let the ball go too early, which is the technical reason. Okay, so why did that happen? Well, I can show you why because here's your video. But unless you want to do that as a player, you're going to carry on bowling pies at the end of an innings, aren't you? I mean, I watch a lot of T20 and I see people missing their Yorker length. And I just have to say this. If you are an international cricketer, you should not be missing your Yorkers by very much at all. Some of them are missing by a long way. We're I mean, getting almost waist height full tosses. Well, that, that's a five or six-meter miss. That's like a darts player missing the, the dart board. Right. Not the bullseye, the, the whole ball. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, mm-hmm. and that doesn't make sense. If you're paid a lot of money to bowl, I'm sorry, but you should be able to bowl Yorkers. And you should be able to get very... very and I appreciate there are batters who can play scoopy shots. But if you're not practicing that before, what are you doing? Seriously. That's my view.
1: Great, great answer. Um, The one other thing I'm curious about is, you know, cricket and techniques have always evolved. Um, You know, even if it's minor tweaks, uh, obviously the basics stay the same um but minor changes keep coming along and it's also you know the way the game is evolving so as an example reverse swing is not as big a deal in ODIs with with the two balls now mm-hmm. uh we've seen wrist spin becoming a major thing yep. um so keeping all that in mind do you also see the uh you know the basics of fast bowling eventually grow uh, and this is not you know in the next 5 years this is more 2 to 3 decades down the road
2: um I think fast bowlers have I've be- had to respond in a clever way. I, I remember when T20 started, because it started in the UK, I was bowling coach at Essex at the time, our very first T20 game, we had no concept of how to play. And everybody went out and slogged like a pinch hitter. And it was a terrible yeah. game of cricket. It was all- I think we lost it. was an awful game of cricket. Um, since then, people have got smarter. And where the game has changed is is in terms of how we have, they call player matchups. Actually, I think that's overcooked a little bit because you can have a player matchup and still bowl poorly. But I understand that the essence behind having analysts to tell you when to bowl this person, I get that. A bit like money ball. I get it to an extent. I, I think actually that's not quite true, but anyway. Um, in terms of the skill levels of fast bowlers, I saw an article, read an article with, uh, from Harshal Patel, and I worked with Harshal for two years when I was with Haryana, and um, Harshal's very good at slower balls, and he was talking about his slower balls, and he said that out of his 24 deliveries, probably 23 of them are slower balls, which is an amazing thing for fast bowlers to say. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, but what he's basically saying is he takes the pace off. And we know now that pace off a cricket ball works. It does depend on the surface, of course. Um, sometimes you can bowl. Here's the thing. If, let's say, you bowl 140 clicks, your slower ball needs to be about 110. Because if you bowl a slower ball, if you bowl 140, you bowl a slower ball 130. That's still going onto the roof of the stands. So that's yeah. part of the problem. You need, there needs to be a big difference. So the w- reason I'm saying that is if you can bowl very quickly, your slower ball is more dramatic. If you're bowling 135 Ks and your your slower ball has to really drop right down because the differential. So speed still has a place to play in a lot of white ball cricket. I think you're right about reverse swing and the two cricket balls. I think ODI cricket, 50 overs, it's it's a more conceptualised game. It's longer. Um, I think 40 overs will probably come in at some point and possibly replace ODIs because... It just—we're almost waiting for the end of a game, aren't we? In a fifty overs, it's like the first ten and the last ten. We don't want to see the middle thirty almost. Um, So I think the game is—but the the game is—it's become more fast food stuff. We see the hundred in the UK. I think the jury is still out on that. You know, it's quite gimmicky. I don't don't know if it works. It's just sixteen overs plus a few more balls. Um, But the skill levels of fast bowler has now become how many. Bag of balls have I got in my bag of tricks? You know what can I do with it? And we always thought spin bowlers would not survive T Twenty. Yet here we are with them populating the top bowlers in the world and and going for the most money. You know, like leg spinners in particular, because they can spin it both ways. You know, they bowl the googly as well. And we've seen this. Another thing. While I'm on that subject. I don't understand how batters do not pick a googly. I'm sorry. I was taught as a kid to pick a googly out of the hand. I, I mean, you see some people bowl it's a googly and they they leave it or they're playing around it or you think how have you not spotted that googly? And we can see it on TV. So I don't. Sometimes I don't know what the batters are doing. But you, the premise to your question about fast bowling and particularly white ball stuff is is it just comes down to I think being able to mix it up. If yeah. you get too predictable. In, in white ball cricket, that's a, that's a no-no. All I will say, I still think Yorkers are king at the end. And if somebody can take you for 20 and over and dig out six Yorkers, fair play. You know, shake hands with them at the end. But buy them a, buy them a fizzy drink at the end because that's a that's a heck of an innings. Yeah. But, but I, do, I do see bowlers trying to get creative and I think that's a great thing. So 10 years down the line, where do we go? I, I don't know. I don't know. We'll perhaps see some more types of slower balls. I don't know.
1: Yeah, that's, I'm curious. So one of the things, obviously, in the four ten peg approach, all these you know videos we've seen online of all kinds of uh, cricket analysts, you know, not even people who are as experienced as you, they talk about the braced knee, like uh, and all of that when when that lap foot lands. Maybe a slower ball could be where they actually bend their knee, and that you know takes off a certain amount of pace. Obviously, to your point, it may not take off as much pace as you would like. Uh, but maybe that's something they can practice and come up with. So um, I'm really curious about that.
2: <laughs> I mean, I would, I, would never, I would, never, suggest that someone changes their technique to to bowl a slower ball. I mean, this is why changing the grip so effective because it's the last thing, and and people yeah. can loosen a grip or tighten the grip, or split their fingers or, or change the way they hold it so that it comes out of your hand 15, 20 miles an hour slow. I mean, sl- old school. Excuse me, old school slower balls were just slower arm. You know, right. you, may, you may as well send the batsman a text message saying, incoming slower ball. You may as well do that because if you slow <laughs> your arm down, everyone can... But here's the thing, you've still got to hit it. You know, even if you know a slower ball's coming, you've got to hit it. But the, some of the clever bowlers... though like There's a bowler, I think his name's McCoy from the West Indies. He's back of the yeah. hand slower ball. You cannot pick it up because the seam is... Per... A bit of Tom o. Mills does this a little bit. The seam is perfectly upright and he looks like a seamer and it's coming out back of the hand so slow. That is very clever. That is very clever. I think, like, deliberately collapsing your back leg, uh, front leg, or... I I hear what you're saying. But but actually, actually I think it's the wrist and grip that have become the clever part of fast bowling. Um, All I would... Other thing I would say, and this is where I sometimes have an issue a little bit, some of the field placing that we have for T20, in particular, you think, why are they bowling there when they have this field? Sometimes the bowlers are just not delivering, executing their skill. I think... Yeah. We, going back to me saying about Yorkers, international bowlers should be able to bowl Yorkers pretty much to order. And I think you should be, at least bowl the right side of the wicket or, or keep it on the island, as I say. And th- those those things are things that you can definitely practice in the nets. And I know there are lots of bowlers who practice with like, soda cans. They put them down and knock them like a coconut shy, you know, just to hit them, just mm-hmm. to hit them. But once you feel confident with that, you can bowl anywhere you want. But the skill levels in T20 are astronomically growing i mean goodness knows where we're going to be in a decade there's some fantastic yep. being played
1: absolutely um and thank you so much for your time fascinating conversation i i feel like i could i could talk to you all day <laughs> and, uh, and pick your brain but thank you so much for your time this has been enlightening and we really appreciate uh you joining us thanks Mike. i've enjoyed it thanks thanks for the time thank you so much
0: thank you for listening to another episode of the last wicket this podcast is a cricket Guys production featuring your hosts Benny, Mayank, Nish, and Himanish. For more details, please visit thelastwicked.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, do let a friend know, rate and subscribe on your platform of choice. Follow us on your social media feeds and leave us a voice message if you would like to share your thoughts with us. Thank you again for listening and from all of us here at The Last Wicked, stay safe and stay healthy.